You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatley in New York with you for the next hour. And we begin with the latest headlines from Ukraine. 21 civilians have died in the northeastern Ukrainian city of Sumy following Russian airstrikes. Videos posted on Twitter show collapsed buildings and piles of rubble. We're seeing attempts to move the city's residents to safety using so-called humanitarian corridors in a deal agreed with the Russians. However, the Ukrainians report a humanitarian convoy headed for Mariupol was shelled by Russian forces. All this taking place as Ukrainian officials accuse Russia of using ceasefires to advance its forces and to deliberately target civilians. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, a defiant Ukrainian president has been live streaming from his office. Volodymyr Zelensky accuses world leaders of inaction, saying that amounts to genocide and is demanding military jets and anti-rocket systems. The fault is with the occupants, but the responsibility is with those who for the last 13 days, somewhere out there, on the West, somewhere in their offices, can't approve an obviously necessary decision. Those who still haven't secured Ukrainian skies from the Russian killers, who haven't protected our cities from air bombings and rockets when they actually can. President Zelensky will address UK lawmakers later today. And the UN Refugee Agency now estimates two million people have escaped Ukraine as the mounting humanitarian crisis continues to take its toll. The UN says nearly all of the refugees are women, children and the elderly. And these people fleeing the violence as the Russian military continues to shell residential areas, as Matthew Chance reports. Clearing up the broken debris of a shattered home. This the devastation caused by a Russian attack on a residential neighbourhood in a small Ukrainian town. Bilosirkva, 50 miles south of the Ukrainian capital, is nowhere near the front lines. But it has felt the rage and the pain of this war. All right, well, we've, we've come inside one of the houses that was affected by what was apparently random artillery or rocket fire into this residential neighbourhood. And you can see just how just how shattered uh, the lives of the family here uh, were. Look, I mean, the windows have all been blown out, obviously. All their belongings uh, have been left behind as they've sort of gone into hiding. There's a picture up there of what uh, seemed to be in the, the, some of the people who lived in here. It was a, it was a family with some children. Apparently, um, they've survived this, which is good. But, of course... When you look at the situation and the, the way that Russians have been shelling residential areas across the country, so many people haven't survived. Um, this is interesting. Come have a look. It's the, it's the children's bedroom. You can see over here, look, the, the bunk beds, you know, the roof that's fallen down onto the, onto the top of them when that shell hit. And of course, in the, in the panic and in the evacuation, the kids have left all their, all their toys up here, you know. And it just shows you that no matter where you are in this country, with Russia attacking towns and cities across it, you know, lives are being shattered. Svetoslav is a close friend of the family who were nearly killed in their beds here godfather to the three children who escaped with their lives. Now he has one request, he tells me, 
for the United States. Please close the skies over Ukraine, he begs. If we can just contact NATO and ask them this, everything will be fine. Otherwise, he warns, Putin will cross Ukraine and threaten the whole of Europe. In a bunker under the town, its terrified children are singing Ukraine's national anthem. It keeps them calm. And as Russia invades, a whole generation of Ukrainians is being united by this war, together as they shelter from the horrors above. Matthew Chance, CNN, in Bilisirkva, Ukraine. We're witnessing the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II, that according to the United Nations, and that's just counting the people who fled the war in Ukraine. Many others have been displaced internally. The mayor of Lviv says the city is struggling now to provide food and shelter for the near 200,000 people who've arrived there so far. Scott McLean joins us now from the city of Lviv. Scott, good to have you with us. You have to assume there's going to be more people coming, and that's why the mayor is simply saying, look, we're desperate for help and more people need to provide more assistance and aid. Yeah, that's right. So the mayor suggesting that the aid right now is going to the front lines, where obviously it is desperately needed, no doubt there. Uh, and also it is in Poland where it is also badly needed as people show up often with no place to go, not knowing anyone there, desperately in need of food and shelter. But he says that Lviv has um, maybe not gotten the attention that it deserves from international aid organizations because many of the people fleeing the fighting in Ukraine transit through Lviv, either by road or by rail. This is sort of the western train hub of Ukraine. And so many of the trains from Kharkiv or from Kiev end up routing through here on their way to Poland or other places. And so a lot of people end up either by choice or uh, because they're stuck here, because they're finding it difficult to get out. Obviously, the train station is packed. You'll have to wait for several hours to get on a train to Poland. Other people are trying their luck by bus uh, and waiting in long queues to cross the pedestrian border. But um, many are forced to stay here. Many also choose to stay here because it is still relatively safe, Julia, because you know, Lviv hasn't had any bombing yet, hasn't had any bombing even close to this area. A lot of people want to get out of the city because they don't trust that it'll stay that way. But still, it is relatively safe for now. But he says that they need food, they need water, and they also need international volunteers to come and help to administer everything. They already have hundreds, 440 schools and cultural places that are being used to house people. Almost 100 churches and religious places are being used to house and feed people as well. And so they're simply running out of space, running out of resources. Scott, how cold is it there? Because if you're talking about people standing in line for several hours, again, we were seeing children, babies in pushchairs waiting in queues there as well. Just how cold is it so, so our viewers can get a sense of, of what the conditions are like? Yeah, the natural temperature surely is below freezing and it feels much colder than that, though. It's sort of this damp cold that sticks with you and gets into your bones. And so that's why there's so much concern. And that's why your heart really breaks for these parents, these now briefly single moms who are carrying sometimes multiple children in tow, sometimes babies just a few days or a few weeks old. And they're having to stand outside sometimes for long periods of time. Luckily, now that we're almost two weeks into the war, it seems like um, authorities and just people in general are much more conscious of that. So yesterday when we were at the border, there were long lineups, a couple of hours to, to get across. 
and they were allowing uh, women with the youngest children to go to the front of the line. And so the people having to wait a little bit longer were kids maybe six, seven, eight years old, which are obviously more able to tolerate these frigid temperatures. Ukrainians are obviously used to this. They know how to dress for the cold, but it doesn't make it any easier to stand out there for hours on end. It doesn't. Scott, good to have you with us. Thank you for that. Scott McLean there. And we'll have more on the humanitarian efforts later in the show when we speak to the CEO of World Central Kitchen, who's feeding refugees in Lviv and countries neighboring Ukraine. In the meantime, the war in Ukraine triggering a multi-decade high in commodity prices, as we've discussed numerous times on the show, threatening slowing economic growth and dire food shortages in poorer nations too. But all the focus today, once again, on what we're seeing in the oil market. Brent crude now topping $130 a barrel. It's up, as you can see, over 5.5% today. Why? Well, CNN is reporting that President Biden is expected to announce a U.S. ban on Russian energy imports later today. He's set to speak in the next hour. Remember, Russian energy is a tiny fraction of U.S. demand and imports, unlike in Europe, which faces the true crisis here. And prices, of course, aren't the only thing that's heated today. So is the rhetoric. On the same day that Europe has laid out a plan to reduce its reliance on Russian energy by up to two thirds by the end of this year, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak responded with the message, quote, go ahead, we're ready for it, while warning that oil prices could hit $300 a barrel, if not more. Anna Stewart joins me now. Wow, the flow of news in the space today. As you and I have discussed, far easier for the United States to say, look, we're banning all Russian energy imports than it is for Europe. But the plan that they've presented here today is, I would call, ambitious, to say the least. Yeah, Europe is expected any moment now to to release a plan to seriously wean uh, their reliance of Russian energy, oil and gas. You know, reducing their gas needs from Russia by two thirds by the end of the year. We'll bring you that press conference perhaps later in the hour when we get it. The threat from the Russian deputy minister that oil prices could hit $300 a barrel or more is quite a distance from the highest estimates we had yesterday. Bank of America said $200 a barrel. Other bank analysts I spoke to said less. It wasn't the only threat there. Um, there was also the one on gas, of course, which Europe relies on Russia for, for more than 40% right now. Russia saying that given uh, Germany halted the certification process for Nord Stream 2, that undersea pipeline connecting Russia to Germany, well, they say they were, would be within their rights to also turn off the taps of gas to Nord Stream 1. That is the existing pipeline. That is the biggest pipeline in terms of gas capacity to Europe, uh, 60 billion cubic meters of gas each year. That's around 40% of all the Russian gas that flows to Europe. These are big threats. The rhetoric is really ramping up here. Um, And uh, yeah, I think we'll get more to come. Yeah, we'll see what comes out of this uh, announcement in the next hour. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you. We're going to head back to Ukraine now. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh joins us from outside a hospital in Mykolaiv near this Black Sea in southern Ukraine, a location of some of the fiercest fighting. Nick, what have you been seeing? Yeah, Julia, I mean, we do often see activity picking up towards sundown a couple of hours away from now. We've been hearing impacts around the city of Mykolaiv, and that's consistent with a pattern we've seen here. Even though uh, the regional governor was brilliant, pleased at pushing Russian forces, it seemed, out of the international airport here. As we drove in, we still saw shelling on the city's outskirts, impacting probably Ukrainian shelling targeting Russian positions. Hard to tell, though. But as the day's gone on, we've continued to hear impacts around this city and in the hospital here, which has a pretty 
constant flow of injured in small numbers coming into it. I heard one story from two women who survived an awful event quite far out of Mikolaev this morning. It appears that five of them were driving, uh, changing shift in a children's uh, rehabilitation centre for disabled children. Um, and as they drove along the road, they appear to have come across what they refer to as the Zeds, which is their way of referring to the Russian forces. They have a Z marking on many of their vehicles. They say that a, a shell exploded near their car and that killed, or possibly the subsequent gunfire, killed three of them outright. Um, one woman, as she talked to me, shaking so vehemently um, from that experience that uh, she could hardly talk. Uh, even though it had happened seven hours ago, she said she saw one of her friends or colleagues' uh, heads blown clean off. And this is a sign, I think, of how civilians are consistently being caught up in the violence here. We've seen them hit by shells here, shelling, um, and the, the stories you hear are, are, are frankly terrifying. The ambulance is relatively persistent behind us. So the fight clearly for Mykolaiv, this very strategic port city, is continuing, even though each time the Russians move in they appear to get pushed back. It's not a successful probe into this very big, very busy, very angry city, but instead there appears to be a lot of shelling, which is just hear another impact there, which is clearly, I think, um, the Russian forces' way of trying to continue to have their presence felt around here. But it hits civilian areas, it's inaccurate, uh, and it does leave you to ask exactly what the end game is here. If they cannot make their presence felt or push into the city itself, are they just going to sit on its outskirts and try and blunder their way in repeatedly and then shell civilian areas out of frustration? A uh, key city, Nikolai, because after that, a desk is next in Russia's sights, but the fight for it continuing despite the fact that Russia doesn't appear to have any sort of decisive move on their hands yet. Julia? Yeah, and, and in the meantime, civilians, as you point out, get caught in the crossfire. I think people listening will have uh, still be digesting some of the, the stories that you were saying and the horrific injuries that, that you've seen. What about for the doctors and nurses that are, are working in the hospital behind you? How well prepared are they and what are they saying about what they've seen already on perhaps what's still to come? Look, I mean, I think this is hospital is, you know, used to, I think, so far the last two weeks, dealing with not overwhelming numbers of injured. I should, you know, stress, I think when in our visit round here, a lot of people have been sent home uh, already with lighter injuries. Other hospitals you've been to, sadly, people have died from their injuries uh, in those hospitals. And so, yes, they, I think they're shocked that this is part of their life. One of the doctors here was talking about how this was predominantly a, a COVID centre uh, before the war broke out. Half of it split into that. This is the surgical department I'm standing in front of. But it's just extraordinary to see the ambulances peel in here. In fact, we've just seen one um, man brought in who was restrained, apparently, because he tried to take his own life. And so that shows you, I think, um, just how the ambulance crews are dealing with all sorts of uh, daily traumas, be they related to the war or not, and how this town, which is just a quiet port city, minding its own business, is somehow finding itself caught in the centre uh, of Russia's pretty barbaric invasion. Yeah. Julian? The consequences of war. Nick, such an important point. Thank you for joining us, Nick Peyton Walsh there from Ukraine. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. Clear economic damage in Russia. The ruble has plunged as the West brings in tough economic sanctions against Russia. Just take a look at this too. Data shows Russia is now the most sanctioned country in the world by a long mile. Look at that relative to Iran. Most experts say President Putin made a miscalculation on the military front 
New York Times columnist Paul Krugman says Putin made one other major miscalculation on the Russian economy. And they were laureate. Paul Krugman joins us now. Paul, fantastic to have you on the show as always. We'll leave the errors perhaps on the military front to, to the experts to deal with. But I do want to hone in on the economics. And, and first and foremost, you could argue that Putin never expected this level of sanctions to be placed against the economy or he would have protected his war chest, his reserves better and not had it majority of it spread in, in G10 nations. I'm not sure there really was any way to have a war chest that was protected. I mean, when we talk about foreign exchange reserves, we don't mean bags of cash. We basically mean one way or another deposits overseas that you can access, except if you can't. And he's got gold, but you know, a bunch of ingots sitting in Russia aren't actually very useful. So I think Putin just failed to understand how the world economy works and particularly what, what, what happens if the West gets really resolved to, uh, to punish him. I mean, I've seen reports of somewhere between a half and, and two thirds of his reserves now frozen elsewhere in the world. And to, to your point, how useful is it waving a gold bar around if you, if you need cash in the short to medium term? Yeah, you normally say, you know, use it as security for a loan, except you can't get a loan. So, um, no, basically, the the war chest has turned out to be an illusion. It just isn't there. What's also been incredible, and we've seen Shell today, an unprecedented statement from them apologising for buying Russian oil last week. And it's this broader chilling effect, whether an asset or a bank has been sanctioned or not. People are now frightened of in any way dealing, trading, buying Russian assets or their produce because they're in some way seen as indirectly funding this conflict. Yeah, I think we've never seen this before. This sudden descent of a fairly, you know, economy that was fairly integrated with the world into pariah status. And that means that even the the formal sanctions are only sort of the half of it. There's a lot of self-sanctioning because no major business interest wants to be seen as propping up the Putin regime. So it's an amazing thing. They really have just cut themselves off from the world. The economic term for this, I believe, is autarky. And actually, I read your article and realized this. And I remember from back when I studied. um, How damaging is this? Because you're talking about economic depression style numbers for Russia. I mean, obviously, we have no modern equivalent, but um, it looks really, really large. I mean, it's not at all hard to think that this is going to be double digit declines in in real GDP. I mean, uh, two thirds of what Russia imports are not consumer goods, but capital goods, intermediate goods, raw materials, which means that lots of their of their domestic economy grinds to a halt when they're cut off from the world. So this is going this is a depression level event probably for the Russian economy. So I was just showing a chart chart that shows the level of sanctions now against the Russian economy. And as you said, we don't have a comparison for this kind of impact significantly more than than what we saw in Iran. But basically what you and I are discussing is that beyond the sanctions that have been leveled, the self-sanctioning that we're seeing means that actually this chart is also underestimating the impact on their economy. Yeah, and and it's also worth remembering, first of all, this is new. And also, you know, Russia is a more sophisticated economy than Iran, which means it's more vulnerable. It's uh, there, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, things like um, 
Uh, even domestic air transport looks like it may be about to sort of collapse because of lack of servicing and spare parts. So this is, you know, this this is we don't know how this the, the end game here, but uh, clearly Putin had no idea what he was getting himself and his country into. We're also talking about something that I don't think we would ever have believed two weeks ago, three weeks ago, which is the United States, as small a fraction as it is enacting an embargo or sanctions on on Russian energy. The Europeans have a challenge. The Hungarians, the Germans are pushing back and saying now's not the time. But Europe has announced a plan to try and wean itself off in the space of a year, the majority of of Russian oil um, and, and gas. How possible, how likely do you think that is? Well, the U.S. can. The U.S. thing is is largely symbolic. Uh, we, mm. you know, it's a global market. Um, if we don't buy Russian oil, we buy oil someplace else. You know, maybe Venezuela, which has suddenly become the lesser of two evils. Um, and um, and the Russians, if they can sell their oil at all, can sell it someplace else. Um, but the Europeans, well, you know, the Europe uses. They're very dependent upon Russian gas. But they're mostly dependent on Russian gas in the winter. They're, it's a very seasonal thing. And in an advanced economy that puts its mind to it is capable of doing a lot of adaptation. The Europeans, if they're willing to really go through with it, can make themselves vastly less dependent on Russian gas by the time next winter rolls around. Yeah, supplies even if you've only got to survive another couple of months in terms of the worst of the winter. Um, what about China? I've seen a lot of discussion about whether or not China, in effect, by with its financial ties, with its trade ties with Russia, can extend this conflict by supporting them. But it feels a little bit like David and Goliath. One economy is giant, has great trade links and power, and the other one is increasingly small. How important is China to Russia? Yeah, I think the Chinese, first of all, uh, are going to do much less in terms of providing an escape valve for the Russians than you know than some people might imagine. Partly because China Chinese firms operate globally and they don't want to be seen as you know get the backlash from consumers and regulators in the West uh, for being seen to prop up a you know a murderous regime. Um, also, China is not close to Russia. You know, don't let the fact that they have a common border fool you. They, um, Russia's economy is basically west of the Urals. China's economy is basically close to the coast. Uh, we're really, you know, Moscow to Beijing is is 3,500 miles uh, as the crow flies. Um, and the links between them are a pretty heavily overstressed uh, limited set of rail lines. Uh, so there, there's not that much they can do. And then if to the extent that China can really step in and rescue, you know, they would exact a price. And yeah, China's economy is 10 times the size of Russia's. I don't think that, you know, Putin with his imperial dreams, that that, that includes becoming a Chinese client state. And yet a Chinese bailout, if, it, it's a, if it's even possible, that's what it would do. So I don't think that China is really uh, makes that much difference to this picture. Yeah, you're saying that he can acquire or try and reinstate some degree of the Soviet Union, but become a vassal state of, of China uh, in return. Yeah. Do you think China would risk risk secondary sanctions to deal with I don't know Russia in the financial sector, for example? Oh, yeah. That's a very good question. And it's hard to know. But I suspect the Chinese are actually going to be very, very cautious. I mean, China really is... 
um, very dependent on trade with the rest of the world. Uh, and they are, um, they don't, in a peculiar way, although China is a giant economy, it's, it has less immediate leverage than the Russians do. China can't cut off heat to the households of Europe the way that Russia can. So I think the Chinese are going to be very cautious. They're probably going to try and, and be as ambiguous as possible, which is not what Putin needs from them right now. Paul, it's a sort of human economics question, but when we're talking in, I'm using your word, a pariah state now like Russia, and in my mind are the words from President Biden a couple of weeks ago where he said these sanctions are not meant to stop the war. Um, how long does it take in terms of the sort of economic asphyxiation that we're seeing for ordinary Russians to, to really feel what's, what's been done? Well, the ordinary Russians are going to feel the economic impact. They're already feeling it. It's already um, hitting really hard. Now, what this does, I mean, uh, if I don't know much about war, I know nothing at all about Kremlin politics. It's not clear. Uh, it, it's not clear actually who has the ability to uh, to force Putin to change course or to overthrow him. Um, you can't. I think trying to be too smart about that is actually not very smart. Uh, but uh, for sure, this is there have to be already a lot of people in Russia, probably including in the Russian military, who are saying, "What the hell are we doing here?" and and uh, do we really want this this crazy person to take us down with him? That's dangerous. They blame the West. Paul, always great to chat to you, sir. Thank you so much for your Thank wisdom. You. Paul Krugman, New York Times columnist and Princeton economics professor. So thank you. Coming up, the human toll is breaking families on both sides of the border. CNN's exclusive report on how Russian families are seeking help from Ukraine. Next. Welcome back. CNN has learned the United States is planning to ban imports of oil, natural gas and coal from Russia. The White House is set to make the move unilaterally without its European allies. President Biden is expected to announce the ban in the next hour. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, at least 21 civilians have died in the city of Sumy following Russian airstrikes. Meanwhile, civilian evacuations began in the city under a deal agreed with Russia. And the UN says at least 2 million people have now left Ukraine. That's around 5% of the population. Most of them have crossed into neighboring countries like Poland and Moldova. Now, with limited to no information on the conflict at home, the families of Russian servicemen and women are having to look to Ukrainian for help, Ukraine for help, in tracking down lost family members. You're about to hear the voices calling across the battle lines as they try to find out if their loved ones are alive or dead. CNN's Alex Markart reports. Hello, These are the voices of Russians, parents, wives, siblings, desperately searching for answers. Calling to find information, anything, on Russian soldiers they've lost contact with who are fighting in Ukraine, who may be wounded, captured, or even killed. Uh, 
This Russian wife, like many others, has turned to an unlikely source for help, the Ukrainians. In a Ukrainian government building, Kristina, which is her alias, is in charge of a hotline called Come Back from Ukraine Alive, which Ukraine's interior ministry says has gotten over 6,000 calls. Kristina asked that we don't show her face. Your country is being invaded, but you also feel the need to help these Russian families. Why? Во-первых, поможем найти тех родственников, которые оказались обманутыми и оказались в нашей стране, даже не зная о том, куда они едут и зачем они едут. И во-вторых, мы поможем, ну, по большому счету, поможем остановить войну. Не знают, что на самом деле происходит в Украине. И вторая цель этой горячей линии – донести правду. Она живет в Украине. The Russian relatives who have called this hotline say they haven't heard from their soldiers since the invasion. The hotline, which Russian families have found on social media or through word of mouth, gave CNN exclusive recordings of a number of the calls. What are some of the calls that stick out to you that you remember the most? Звонил отец. Он говорит, наших детей используют как пушечное мясо. Политики, большие люди играют в свои игры, решают свои вопросы, а наши дети должны умирать. These are the notes from one of the calls, and in fact, this call came from the United States, the relative of a young Russian soldier trying to find him. She told the Ukrainians that his parents are no longer alive, that the grandmother in Russia uh, is quite sick. We have his birthday. He's just 23 years old, and he was last known to be in Crimea right before the invasion. Now, the Ukrainians don't have any information on him, but if they do find him or get some information, they can then call his aunt back in the United States. Data from the hotline shows thousands of calls, not just from all across Russia, but also from Europe and the United States. Hello, is this Marat? Yes, it is. We got through to three relatives in the United States of Russian soldiers believed to be in Ukraine who called the hotline, including a relative in Virginia of one who also found the soldier's ID and photos on a channel of the social media app Telegram, also dedicated to finding the whereabouts of Russian soldiers. We do realize that all the signs are pointing to that is most likely was killed in action. But we're trying to locate the information. Where is the body? It could be potentially found. Maybe, hopefully, he's alive. Is the Russian Ministry of Defense telling anything to the family? Um, family is trying to um, not get contacted by anybody just because everyone is so scared in Russia. Everyone is scared to talk. Everyone is, is afraid of a law enforcement agency is tracking them. Marina told us her cousin's parents have had no contact with him, no information on whereabouts or on his condition. Are they being told anything? No, no, they called, like they tried to find him, but like no one is answer.
Is that why you called this Ukrainian hotline? Yeah, that's why I tried to call, yes. Did you get any information? Nope, nothing. I was, you know, hoping that he's like maybe like in a prison or something like that, you know, that he's still alive. The vast majority of the calls do not result in immediate information for the families. Back in Kyiv, Kristina makes clear that the call center isn't just designed to offer answers, but to galvanize Russians against the war. Sympathy for families, but also one more way to try to undermine the Russian war effort as Ukraine fights for its very existence. Alex Marquardt, CNN, Kyiv. The price of war. We're back after this. Welcome back. The exodus from Ukraine continues. As you've heard, the United Nations Refugee Agency says two million people have now left, many clutching backpacks filled with essentials, leaving everything else behind. My next guest made it his mission to treat the new arrivals with dignity. World Central Kitchen provides meals in disaster zones all around the world. It's serving hot food to displaced people at eight points on the Polish border and in Hungary, Moldova and Romania. And Nate Mook is the CEO and joins us now. Nate, great to have you with us. For many people, this is the congregating point that from those that are flooding and fleeing the east, they then move on to other places. I guess for many of them, this is the first hot meal they've had in a number of days. Absolutely. So I'm in Lviv, which is a city on the western side of Ukraine, and it has become a bit of the humanitarian center in the country right now. Um, you know, it is fairly calm. There are air raid sirens that do go off. But at the moment, what's happening is Ukrainians from all over the country are coming by train, by car, by bus, here to Lviv, where they figure out their next steps. And we're only seeing more and more coming in every single day. The mayor said the city is full now, but obviously that hasn't stopped and that can't stop those that have no other choice but to flee and arrive here. Yeah, I mean, the, the mayor said we, we need more supplies. We simply can't feed more people than the 200,000 people that have already arrived. Where are you getting supplies from? Because I'm assuming that's a logistical challenge of its own. Yeah, we've got some incredible partners here on the ground in Lviv and also across Ukraine as well. We have kitchens and restaurants that are serving in cities like Kharkiv and Kherson and Kiev and Odessa. And here in Lviv, we have amazing partners that have dozens of kitchens that we've now activated. We're, we're working with them to identify suppliers, but we're also bringing in a fair amount of food from Poland. So we've set up a humanitarian corridor. We have initial trucks that came in yesterday. We've got six more big semi-trucks arriving today. So the idea here is to really begin to stockpile as much food as we can, knowing that supplies are starting to run short. And this is what we're seeing here. Our partners are telling us that their suppliers are having a hard time getting access to meat. They're running out of things like rice and bulgur. And so the more that we can backstop and support that by bringing in product, that's what we're trying to do right now. And also prepare potentially to have to feed hundreds of thousands of people every single day. I spend most of my time here in Lviv going around to new uh, shelter points that are set up that are really popping up everywhere. I just came from a sporting facility. I was at a a polytechnical university. I was at a yoga studio. 
that's turned into a makeshift shelter for 150 people. This is happening all across the city right now as people arrive from across Ukraine and need somewhere to stay as they figure out their next steps. If people are watching and may be able to help or provide resources or in the local area, even just in terms of transport to provide it, where do they need to go in order to to contact you or your organization to try and help? Yeah, it's a great question. So those that are in Ukraine, we have a number of opportunities to volunteer contact World Central Kitchen, some of our partners, including FEST, FEST. They've set up a call center to receive requests for food. This is now sort of constant. There's new places being opened up. We have volunteers that are helping us drive and distribute meals as well. Outside of Ukraine, I think one of the best things you can do is donate money because this money can be directly put towards those that need it right now. So that any donations to World Central Kitchen are going straight to purchasing food and making sure food gets to those families that need it most. And also being able to keep those uh, employed at our local restaurant partners, which is a really critical piece of this right now. You know, I often think, and, and you can give us your experience of, of doing this all over the world, um, in a natural disaster, for example, in many ways, the sort of worst part of it, it's happened. Then it's about recovery. It's about mending. It's about moving on. But for many of these people that you're meeting and helping, the uncertainty is just beginning and they may not even know where they're going on to next. Can you compare this and the people that you're meeting and what they're going through to what you've seen in other parts of the world? You know, it's absolutely, as you said, we're still in the middle of this and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that sense of uncertainty and instability really creates a huge amount of of trauma and just fear. Um, You know, these families that we're meeting are extraordinarily resilient and the Ukrainian volunteers that are coming together and the partners that we're working with are amazing, but they are dealing with quite a bit right now. And, you know, everybody, you know, every so often needs to take a moment to just sort of catch their breath a little bit and realize, you know, the scale and the enormity of what's happening. You know, I've we yesterday I was at a train station, a new train station that just opened in Lviv because the main trade station is becoming so crowded. They opened a second station where they expect tens of thousands of Ukrainians to be arriving. We started serving meals there today. I met a family. They had just traveled for 24 hours on a pack train then waited another nine hours for the grandparents of the young kids to to arrive. Uh, They didn't have a ride, so I drove them to one of the registration centers where then they can find accommodation and they sort of get set up in the system here. And just hearing their stories, you know, they didn't know when they were going to go back home again. They didn't know what was next. Their lives were torn apart. It is horrific what is happening right now in Ukraine. And everybody is trying to do their part to come together. and, And that is the one sort of semblance of hope right now is the spirit of the Ukrainian people that are so strong amidst what's going on. And so, you know, we're here at World Central Kitchen just to continue to do whatever we can. The situation is changing every single day, as you said. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We are unfortunately having to prepare for the worst, even while we hope for the best. So, you know, it's day by day. And this is this is definitely something new for us. Nate, you know, we're all grateful for what you and your team are doing. I I was just going to ask how you guys are holding up. How are your team doing? You're in a conflict zone. Yeah, you know, our team is is doing extraordinarily well. I'm so proud of them, both all along the Polish border here with me in Ukraine and 
in some of the other neighboring countries as well. Uh, we're obviously taking a lot of precautions. We're making sure that everybody is safe and well rested. You know, I think what really is driving uh, our team is seeing the incredible work of so many others that is that are so inspirational. I mean, our chefs right now that are cooking in places like Kherson or Kharkiv, one of our kitchens in Kharkiv was only 500 meters from where that big missile hit that was all over the news. And, you know, and still yet every day they're still cooking, they're still baking bread. We are getting trucks from here in Lviv. We're sending additional supplies out to them. We have a truck going out to Odessa today and Kharkiv tomorrow. And this, you know, helping support their work. And that, I think, really keeps us going because we know that these heroes are on the front lines every day cooking for their communities. And we have to be here to support them. I know. I think we've all been humbled, for want of a better word, by the spirit the humanity and the strength of the Ukrainian people. You you tweeted something. It was a video that you captured at the Lviv railway station. I just want to play some of it for, for my viewers. Nate, describe that moment. Yeah. You know, we had just uh, been distributing some hot meals, some bogrash soup that our kitchen behind me is preparing right now and handing out fresh sandwiches and, and meeting some of these Ukrainians that were arriving into Lviv. And, you know, it's such an intense, stressful moment and, and just so um, heartbreaking. And then you sort of pause and you hear the music and it's sort of overwhelming and everybody sort of takes a moment. And I think, you know, it's this brief sort of moment to forget about where you are and to think about the future and, and what hopefully will be very soon, a calm, beautiful time where we can all be together in one under a peaceful sky. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot. We pray. Thank you, Nate, to you and your team for being where you are right now. Nate Mook, CEO of World Central Kitchen. So, so we'll keep in touch. Thank you. We're back after Thank this. Welcome back. President Biden expected to announce a U.S. ban on Russian oil imports in the next hour and beyond. The EU also announcing measures to cut its imports of Russian oil and gas by some two thirds within a year. As you would expect, oil markets are certainly reacting. Brent and U.S. crude higher by more than 5% across the board. We are just below $130 a barrel in Brent crude, as you can see there. Remember, Russia's deputy prime minister is now warning of $300 a barrel plus oil if the West cuts energy ties with his country. The global price of foodstuffs too, wheat, corn and metals like nickel are rising to records too on supply fears. Nickel is up 250%. Yes, you heard me right. In two days, London regulators have been forced to halt trading in that metal today because of the intense volatility. And in the meantime, U.S. and European stocks holding steady after a weak Monday that saw the Dow falling into correction territory. So that's a drop of 10% from recent highs. Now let's move on. The letter Z is quickly becoming a pro-war symbol of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The letter was first spotted on tanks and military vehicles. Well, now it's gaining support from Russian civilians too. A CNN's For Black reports. It's impossible not to notice. Many of the Russian vehicles invading Ukraine carry a distinctive mark. Trucks, tanks, fighting, engineering and logistical vehicles. They are advancing through Ukraine with the letter Z painted conspicuously in white. The people being invaded have noticed. Here in the eastern Ukrainian town of Kupyansk, 
An angry crowd swarms after and attacks a single vehicle. Its only obvious connection to the war, the letter Z. It's almost certainly some kind of tactical grouping. There's a million different theories about what the Z means, but I think it's just a marking, just easy do-do-do, easy thing to mark, just like a square or triangle. In a war where the wannabe conquerors are not flying their national flag, that single character has taken on special significance. Ivan Kuliak. At a recent gymnastics World Cup event, 20-year-old Russian competitor Ivan Kuliak accepted his bronze medal wearing a Z prominently on his chest. He was standing next to a Ukrainian athlete. The sports governing body described it as shocking behaviour. But how do you describe this? Terminally ill children and their carers formed a giant Z outside a hospice in the Russian city of Kazan. It's disgusting that the state is co-opting young children to be propaganda mechanisms for their war. It is dangerous when small little symbols become proxies for being a loyal citizen in an authoritarian regime during a time of war, because those who don't wear it, those who don't show the Z, uh, could be targeted by the state. And in this highly produced propaganda video, Russian men wearing that letter declare their support for the invasion, chanting for Russia, for the president, for Russia, for Putin. An aerial shot shows a giant Z made from the orange and black of the St. George's Ribbon, a traditional symbol of Russian military glory, usually associated with victory over Nazi Germany. By accident or design, a character that doesn't feature in Russia's alphabet has become an iconic symbol of Putin's invasion and the propaganda campaign to win support among his people. Phil Black, CNN, London. Okay, that's it for today's show. Stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.